You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Exodus. Here's Nate. Well, in Exodus chapter 21, we move past the Ten Commandments and into the Law of Moses or the regular everyday rules and regulations for the nation of Israel. Now, obviously, we are not the nation of Israel. But as you study these laws, you learn some fascinating things about God, about the heart of God. You see some wonderful pictures of Jesus Christ. And there are some beautiful and very applicable words that God speaks to Israel that are very transferable to us within the church. So even though we aren't under the judicial law of the nation of Israel, there is a great blessing for us found in studying this section of scripture. Verse 1 sort of gives us the heading of this next section. He says, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. One word, one thing that I would say just by way of reminder is to remember that as you read these and as you study these rules and laws, remember, first of all, that God is speaking to a nation and not to mere individuals. When Jesus came, he began to speak to the heart of an individual, began to push for individual decision, began to tell us that we must be born again. When God speaks to the nation of Israel, however, he's speaking to a nation of people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb there in Egypt, who are his covenant people. They belong to him. They are his purchased possession, but they are a nation. And speaking to a nation, he sets up borders and laws by which to govern them. And so many of these laws are simply a reaction to some of the natural practices that a culture will get itself into. For instance, when Jesus came in Matthew 19, he announced that Moses gave to the people of Israel certificates of divorce. Not because God in heaven wanted to promote the idea of divorce, but because he wanted to discourage the idea of divorce, something that they were already getting themselves into. So the certificate of divorce in the law was designed to pull back the reins a bit and slow down the divorces that were occurring. You would find the same type of thing with the marital laws. They were accumulating wives for themselves left and right. And so God would speak into polygamy and all of that. It's not that God is saying, hey, I'm pro-polygamy. It's that his people culturally, nationally, some of them were heading into that direction. And so God gives his word culturally, nationally, to speak into their hearts to regulate, really, in many ways, what the people of Israel were doing. And we find one of those regulating laws and words here at the beginning of Exodus chapter 21 concerning slavery, concerning slavery. Now a word about this. In my culture here in America, you know, in our nation's history, we have an ugly and horrible mark upon our past in slavery. And in our culture, 
you know, great fights and wars were waged over this particular issue. In our historical version of slavery, there was absolutely nothing good or redeemable about it. Recently, I finished reading the book, 12 Years a Slave, written by a man who had been a freeman, was a black man in the North who was kidnapped and sold into slavery in Louisiana. He detailed time and time again in his book how he had never met a slave who wouldn't at a moment's notice, even with a good master, quote unquote, would not in a moment's notice have received freedom from their slavery. Even in the greatest situation, they still would have rushed to freedom. The whole idea of our historical slavery was one of absolute ownership of a human being and that those human beings were actually not human beings at all, but were in some way subhuman, an absolutely corrupt and evil and demonic view. Unfortunately, whenever we read the word slave in the Old or New Testament, we often import our American history definition into the biblical record and account. I think there's a good chance that the author who wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else, Luke, who actually wrote more verses of the New Testament than the Apostle Paul did because he wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts, two major works of the New Testament. There's a great chance that that man himself was a slave and a physician. It was a different kind of slavery in the Roman Empire than we are used to in our American history. Over half of the Roman Empire was enslaved. It was a very common thing. In the nation of Israel as well, it was far different from the slavery in which we remember in our history. But it's so difficult to divorce yourself from that backdrop. But as we move through this, try to do it as we Think of the laws that God gave to govern the slavery there in Israel. Of course, remembering that this is more than likely not the ideal, uh, but God is regulating the nation. He said in verse 2, he said, When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. So one of the first and, and most significant principles here is that the slavery of this slave would not be for life. He would serve for six years, and in the seventh year, he would be set free. And this obviously meant that a man would not have to give his entire life out of slavery, and this obviously meant that a man was not actually owned by the employer, the master, the one that he worked for. Uh, he says if he comes in single, verse 3, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. So if he comes in as a single man, he'll leave single. If he comes in and he's already got a wife, then he gets to leave with his wife with him. If his master, verse 4, however, gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her master's. And he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost and his master shall 
bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. So, you know, one reason for this slavery there in Israel was for the repayment of debts. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 13 and 14. Leviticus 25, verse 39 said, If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you. So, you know, during a time of poverty, you could, as a poor man, go to someone who was more well off and volunteer yourself. Say, hey, would you purchase me for a period of six years that I might have some provision, something to do, a way to work with my own hands? I've known many who, even in my modern context, maybe have come from a place of poverty, were very disadvantaged, couldn't get an education, and so they gave themselves to the United States military for a period of time. The military then, after their service was complete, paid for their education, sent them off in a better situation than when they came in. And this is what God had asked for the people of Israel. He said in Deuteronomy 15, verse 13 and 14, he said, When you let your slave go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You'll furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. So when he was set free, the slave actually went out with in a pretty good situation. He had a little bit of livestock, a little bit of food, a little bit of money. And so it was a good situation for him when he departed. He wasn't just kicked to the curb and required to go sell himself into slavery once again. No, he could get back onto his own two feet. It was a rather dignified situation. Now, if in the course of his slavery, the slave received a wife from the master, that wife and her children still were required to serve in that master's household. The husband could go free, could have his own employment, his own household, his own vineyard, his own crops, his own livestock, his own whatever, but his wife and his children would still work for the original master would make a man think long and hard before receiving that kind of benefit from a master. He didn't have to receive a wife and the children that would come with a wife. However, there was this neat little option that God put in there. If he did receive a wife and by way of that wife, children, at the end of his slavery, the man could then say, I love my master, verse 5, my wife and my children. I will not go out free. Now, like I said to you, in our American history version of slavery, you would never have found a slave who would have said, I will not go out free. So it's a different kind of thing entirely. And so this man says, I love my master. I love my wife and my children. And so if that's what he wanted, then he would give himself to the master for the rest of his life. The master would take him, put him up against a doorpost and take his ear and put an earring through it. That earring would signify that he belonged to his master for the rest of his life. Now, obviously, that earring would say something quite clearly about the master. 
it would say that the master is a good man. It would say that the master is worth following. Paul the Apostle, in many of his epistles, said, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Some of the translations say a bondservant, the same idea of taking that earring, allowing it to be put into your ear as a sign that you have laid down your life so that you can serve in the household of your master. No one would do this for a tyrant of a master, but some would do this for a good and kind master, realizing that the situation in the master's household was better than the situation outside of the master's household. Some people wonder, how could you as a Christian submit yourself to the word of God? How could you as a Christian give yourself to God's rule over your life? And the answer is simple. He's a good master. Life is better inside of his household than outside of his household. I want to give myself to him because life is good with him. Now in verse 7, he moves on to talk about slavery for females. He says, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. In other words, when a man takes a daughter and gives her into slavery, what he needs to understand is this is a permanent situation. It's not like the men who would be set free after six years, the heads of households able to get back on their feet, pay off a few debts, and that kind of thing, and with dignity get their lives rebooted and restarted, you're not to do that with your daughters. In one sense, this is a protection against the women in that culture, lest a father look at his little girl and say, well, she could go serve for six years and be set free in the seventh. No, that wasn't allowed. She would not be set free. What you do, do not do quickly. Don't be hasty here. This is a permanent decision. And usually these decisions were made with the purpose of committing a daughter into a marriage, either for the head of this new household or for his son. And, and even in that situation, God had protection in that kind of arranged marriage with a payment and contract and all of that. He says, verse eight, if she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. In other words, God looked upon that situation. He saw these moments where these women were being put into these marriages and they would fall out of favor with their husband. And God saw that and hated it and said, listen, if that occurs and she displeases him, then he has to, he says, verse 8, let her be redeemed. She has to be able to be set free. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people. He's got to treat her well. She has to be redeemed within her family since he has broken faith with her. She's protected in that moment of displeasure. She cannot be treated as a mere possession. This is what they would do without the restriction, but God gives the restriction. He says, verse 9, if he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. So she actually becomes not just 
a possession and not a servant, but she becomes like a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, so polygamy, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. He has to treat her well and respectfully. And if he does not do these three things for her, give her food and clothing and marital rights, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. So she'll be set free if he treats her in this unfair kind of way. So God made it a very steep thing. And in many ways, especially compared to the other cultures of the time, this was a marvelous protection for the women that lived there within that nation. Now, of course, individually, God has a higher calling upon our lives than this. And when you get to the New Testament, you understand that the word of God for us as his people, as the church, is much more elevated, has more maturity to it. I heard one pastor describe it this way. He said, listen, the rules you have for your children when they're three are much less refined than the rules you have for your children when they are 18. There's just a progression of revelation, so to speak. And when you get to the New Testament, you see God's perfect heart that male and female are equal in the sight of God. And so God here is protecting the slaves and protecting especially the female slaves from injustice. Then he moves on in verse 12 to talk about personal injuries. He says, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. So again, the respect of human life and, you know, God had said in Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder and here he announces that if you strike a man and he dies, you will be put to death. The respect of human life is incredibly important to God. God had said something similar after the flood when he announced to Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his image. So there's something special about mankind. They've been made in the image of God. They should not be killed easily. There will be, of course, times where that type of judgment is made. It's right here in the verse. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. This was not murder in God's sight to judge the murderer with the death penalty, but very swift and severe because of God's great respect for human life. But then he goes on, he says, verse 13, but if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. So this is less intentional death. It wasn't premeditated. He's not lying in wait. And God let him fall into his hand. It was some kind of accidental death. He says, I'm going to appoint a place for you which you may flee. There were six cities of refuge that God established throughout the land of Israel where a person who accidentally or in self-defense had taken someone else's life, they could run to this city of refuge and be safe there. But, verse 14, if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So he won't be safe there if he did this on purpose and it was a planned attack. Whoever, verse 15, strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. 
Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. So you have the death penalty here for these three things that are, you know, whoever strikes his father or mother, that man is put to death. God is establishing a strong reverence for the family structure. You can't lash out against your parents physically. You can't buy and sell human beings, which is what so much of pornography and prostitution is all about, by the way. The next time someone you know talks to you of pornography or you yourself are tempted towards that, understand that quite often you are supporting, through your activity, the buying and selling of human beings. That's what's behind that industry slavery of human beings themselves. He gives the punishment here of they're put to death and whoever curses his father or mother. So you can't lash out physically, verse 15, but you can't lash out verbally as well or else you're put to death. And so God is putting a sanctity on the home. God is guarding it and protecting it. That disrespectfulness was to be dealt with in the same way as murder We don't have a whole lot of records of this kind of thing actually occurring, but God is stating it. It would put a real burden on the people to to respect that family structure. When men, verse 18, quarrel, and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. So these guys get in a fight, and, you know, the loser goes home, is in his bed, but the next day he gets up and he gets out of his house and he says, you know, the guy that struck him, he'll be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. So this is very just. You know, the judges would look and say, listen, you injured this man. You got into a drunken stupor. You got into a fight with this guy. You threw a chair at his head. He was injured. He was off his feet for a period of time. Couldn't work with his hands. You've got to pay for his loss of time. Very just. But verse 20, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. So it was important to God that the slaves, male or female, would not be unprotected in Israel. And you would make sure that if any slave ever died as a result of being struck by their master, that master would themselves be avenged and have to die. But if the slave lived, then he's already out of the slave's time. In other words, the slave gets to have the recovery time. In the previous instance, the man who put him out He loses money because he has to pay the other guy and say, well, listen, you were out of work for 10 days, so I'm going to pay you 10 days worth of wages. But here, in this instance, the slave gets a chance to recover and the master himself has missed out on 10 days worth of work from this man whom he employs. So he, just by that fact alone, is losing out. That's the payment that he is making for striking out against his slave. And when men, verse 22, strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, 
The one who hid her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, this is interesting because God, of course, is declaring that the child inside of the womb is a human being in his sight. And if that child dies, then you will pay life for life. Abortion is the crime of our generation. It's such an ugly thing that has occurred within our culture. This is interesting because in other instances, the unintentional taking of life usually wasn't a capital offense. We've already seen this in verse 12 and 13. However, here, if it happened to a pregnant woman and the child inside of her womb, then it did become a capital offense, even if it wasn't a premeditated kind of thing. And so God, again, establishing a protection for the woman. And uh, he goes on to say, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, which as we learn in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus helps us understand that God established this in order to help restrict the over-the-top responses to different crimes people would commit. You know, you hit me, I'm going to kill you. And it was, no, it's going to be an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's going to be an equitable kind of thing. When a man strikes, verse 26, the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he should let the slave go free because of his tooth. So again, this would make a master think long and hard about putting his hands upon his servant. When an ox, verse 28, gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. So some great requirements here concerning an ox. And really, he's just basically saying, you know, listen, if it happens and it, an ox gores a man or a woman to death, that ox has to die. But the owner is not liable. They'll eat the flesh of the ox, but the owner is not liable. But if it's been his tendency to gore in the past and the owner's been warned, then the owner has to also be put to death after the ox is stoned to death. And so it just speaks of understanding the tendencies and to really take responsibility for your actions. And then he goes on to say there in verse 30 and 31, he's saying, you know, listen, if it gores a son or a daughter, same rule. And if it gores a slave, a male or female slave, then there is a price that is paid because it's the monetary value that the master is missing out upon. When a man, verse 33, opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit 
shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. So, you know, if two oxes fight, one dies, then they make it right by selling the live ox and splitting the money that they got for it, and then they take the flesh of the dead oxen and they split that as well. Or if it is known, verse 36, that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox and the dead beast shall be his. So a steeper penalty. If you knew that this was the tendency of your ox in the past and did not take the proper precautions to make sure that everyone else's possessions were safe as a result of this loose cannon of an ox that you had in your possession. It speaks of taking responsibility for other people, for their health, for their safety, and being responsible to make sure that you would not injure those around you. What a wonderful thing to see from the heart of God, his desire for his people to be a blessing to others rather than a curse. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.